Now with the virtual world, we're actually able to engage with scientists from different parts of the world and then connect with their networks. There has become sort of broad recognition that we have a responsibility in higher education to provide our PhD students with a broader set of skills and competencies. That can be another way of getting information that you might not know. You're listening to Vitamin PhD, a podcast from Boston University delivering career narratives and know-how to supplement your doctoral studies. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to episode three of the Vitamin PhD podcast. And this season, we're focused on research skills. My name is Matt, and I'm a first-year PhD student in computer engineering here at BU. And hi, everybody. I'm Heather Mooney, Matt's co-host, and I'm a six-year PhD candidate in sociology here at BU, focusing on race, gender, crime, and culture. And today, we're focusing on one of the most critical and most obfuscated and honestly stressful pieces of graduate school, publishing and research dissemination. We're going to cover conferences, journals, collaboration, how do we get our research out there, stumbling blocks, and tips on how to produce knowledge successfully across the disciplines while dealing with both the challenges and rewards of publishing. And this episode will look a little different than our usual format. Given the scope of publishing, we asked each of our guests across the entire season different questions about publishing in their disciplines, and we've collected their answers here to feature in this episode. So the question becomes, why talk about publishing? We all know that publishing is a key part of getting hired into academia, but because there's so much variation across disciplines, we're going to focus on highlighting the experiences that are common to all researchers during the publishing process. And what about people who may be headed to industry after their PhD? We're also going to explore why they should even care about publishing. To start this conversation, we're going to hear from Dr. Vincent Smith, Division Chief of Newborn Medicine at Boston Medical Center, and Dr. Brad Johnson, a professor of psychology in the Department of Leadership, Ethics, and Law at the United States Naval Academy. Again, we'll be hearing more from both of them later this season. But to start, we asked them both the basic question, why publish at all? We'll start with Dr. Vincent Smith. I didn't understand the importance of this when I was kind of going through, because it seemed very like an academic activity that I was doing this stuff. And uh, what I've since discovered is the reason why you publish positive or negative is because there are other people around the world who are working in, the, in, in on these areas or working and um, they can't do it all. No, no one person can do it all. And it does take away of having information put out there that so it's available widely to kind of help move the whole field along. And uh, why specifically with publishing? And it, and I see part of that is because of peer review. And I will acknowledge the peer review system is broken. It, it, it kind of is, but right now it's the best system that we have. And ideally, when someone is reading and reviewing the work that you've done, they may bring in a different insight or maybe even say, okay, well, this is what you got, but could this be the alternative explanation? And how do you prove or disprove that with what you're doing. And I've had a couple of really, I'm gonna have some terrible reviews, but I had a couple of really good reviews that actually changed the nature of the work and made it better. And they're like, well, you know, you really have done a lot of work with this, 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 and this, but another alternative, which you hadn't even mentioned is, could this be contributing? And if so, what difference would that make? And then you have this little aha moment and you're like, you know, 
when I've been looking at these babies, I've been asking about their mothers. Sometimes they have a father too, or another partner. Why didn't we think to ask about that? <laughs> and, 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 you know, it sounds kind of funny, but sometimes when you're so focused on your, on what it is that you're doing, you're, you're looking at the detail, but you, you miss kind of the bigger kind of framework. And so, so I think it helps with that way. And I think like not just publishing, I think you should all also be doing peer review because then you're seeing what other people are doing. It gives you a better understanding of how the process works. And it kind of like allows you to help share your insight with someone else who's working on kind of getting their, their information out there. And so, wow, that yeah. was that good? That was amazing. And um, I, I know there's like a running joke on, you know, Instagram about reviewer two, right? <laughs> reviewer two was always out to get you. Yeah. Um, but you're totally right, right? Like that's where we get feedback. And especially now when we do so often work alone, it's so critical, right? To have those iterative, even if reviewer two is mean to you, right? You can still get that iterative process. Um, which is Just so know important. reviewer two is going to get theirs. It always comes back. <laughs> That is reassuring and very true. And now we ask Professor Brad Johnson the same question. Why publish at all? For those of us in academe, I, this is clearly the coin of the realm. And I don't think anybody has any misconceptions about that. I mean, you have to publish. You have to have a stream of research. That's required for grants and everything else you need to do. But it's also required to get tenure and you know survive in your career. Here's the thing. Um, I, I think that sometimes when I'm getting my PhD and I could be telling myself, I, I just want to go into industry. I'm not, this is maybe less important. Um, that may change for me, right? Or, you know, I may have a different inspiration later. And if I haven't done the work to transform some of my research into publications, it may simply limit um, what I can do later on. Um, you know, it's also just gratifying to get your work published eventually. So I, I would I would keep working on that. I think it's always it's going to pay off. Wow. Yeah, that was a good point. It definitely uh, echoes Dr. Smith's comment about the challenges of the process. So now let's talk a little more about the different venues for disseminating our research, namely conferences and journals. We asked Dr. Yasmin Dallaire, macromolecular scientist and senior engineer at medical technology company BD, about the dynamics of both conferences and presentations. Um, I think the question that stands out to me is like the pros and cons of journals and conferences fits in a journal that lives on and can always be like looked up and referenced. But I think conferences are also super important. Like it's definitely a great way to just network, get yourself out there, practice speaking in front of others. But you never know like who you might stumble upon there and you could perhaps meet, um, you know, a good mentor or someone that's looking for a postdoc or you know, a leader in industry that's looking for just the right person and you are there presenting your work and you, you know, can interact with them in person. And that's definitely valuable. Mm, yeah, absolutely. That opportunity for in-person connection that we get at conferences is so important, especially as we build our dissertation committees, cultivate research partnerships and build job networks. Matt, what do publishing and conferences look like in your discipline? Uh, that's an excellent question. As a PhD in computer engineering, my work is in robotics, automation, computer vision and perception, and machine learning and deep learning. In these fields, the primary focus seems to be on getting a paper accepted to a top conference. 
Uh, for example, I just had my first paper accepted to a big international computer vision conference where only 26% of the submitted papers are even accepted. And that still amounted to over 1,600 accepted papers. And in the lab where I work on campus, the focus is on when the next major conference is coming up to push papers for that specific conference's deadline. Now, of course, there are plenty of articles published in these fields in journals and online publications, but I've gotten the sense that those are less important than getting a paper accepted at a top conference, which has been a bit of a surprise to me. Going into my PhD, I always assumed publishing meant getting something into some prestigious publication like Science or Nature or the New England Journal of Medicine. I thought conferences were just for networking and hearing talks by people who had already been published somewhere else. Uh, what about you, Heather? What does it look like for you? Wow, that's really different. In my experience, conference and publications look different even for adjacent disciplines in the social sciences and humanities. So when I was attending the National Women's Studies Association conference, for instance, panels were pre-made by panelists, and then panelists submitted abstracts of the individual papers and the overall panel to the committee for review. As an interdisciplinary conference, I would say it's a bit more bottom up than other conferences, considering the expertise is so varied. For sociology, especially for the big conferences in this discipline, you submit a full paper, which is reviewed by experts who are invited to coordinate panels. And if your paper is a good fit, it lands on the panel. So basically, when you're applying for the conference, you'll register for a subfield or an area of focus, like sociology of culture, urban sociology, race, class, and gender. And then you are put onto a related panel or a less formal round table. Both, of course, have invited panelists. So I'm thinking about presidential panels, plenaries, and so on. And in my discipline, journal publications are definitely expected. And the higher ranking journal that you publish in, or the journals with the highest impact factor, are valued the highest. Overall, I'd say invited talks and publications in peer-reviewed journals, as opposed to book chapters or book reviews that don't have that same sort of peer oversight, are the most important to the field of sociology. Huh. Yeah, it's interesting to hear the differences between the fields and where the focus is when you're publishing. So in this vein, we asked Professor Eden Medina, Associate Professor of Science, Technology, and Society at MIT, about how to choose a journal, especially for someone who works across a variety of disciplines as she does. Again, we'll hear more from her later this season as well. So, you know, the way that, that I've thought about being an interdisciplinary scholar is I tend to, you know, I'm very aware that my work will speak to different audiences, um, but that different audiences, you know, they have different conversations that they're a part of. So my, my research discipline history is very book-based. So, you know, the, the, big, the big production, like the big piece of scholarship that you're going to produce is, is going to be, you know, a, a book. But we also, you know, we publish articles and you can publish pieces of your project ahead of time. So what I've, what strategically what I've done is I look at the project and I try to say, you know, who, who do I think is the primary audience for this project? And maybe that will shape my decision about the press that I would approach uh, about the book. Um, but then if there's another audience that I want to engage then I may try to, you know, write an article and put it in a journal that's a respected journal for that audience. So just thinking, you know, just strategically about publication um, and ways that that I can create scholarship, publish scholarship, um, 
that that best fits with the conversations of the kinds of academic communities that I that I want to engage with. So just putting that out there, you know, as people, you know, graduate students, as they start to think about where they want to publish their dissertation, um, you know, they can think about their different audiences for an article, you know, or the book. There, there are ways of reaching the kinds of conversations that you want to reach. Wow, that's such a good point. And especially as an interdisciplinary person, I really appreciate those insights. And of course, publishing and sharing our research, it's not always so smooth. One of our grad students, Louis Ramirez, a PhD candidate in neuroscience here at BU, explained some of his recent research challenges and how he solved them. Yeah, I actually just recently had a research problem that I overcame. But this is, you know, there are, very, there are a lot of different phases for a research project, and this is towards the later end when you're trying to get your research published. And you know, I always hear about the review process being, it can be really brutal sometimes. <laughs> and I was fortunate to have a really rough review process. And the reviews and my responses, it was a lot of back and forth and a lot of butting heads. And it, it seems like there was, a, there was a fundamental disagreement in the data and the model and, you know, the, the framework we were working in. And I don't know, that's hard. You know, how do you, how do you reach a middle ground where both sides are happy with the work that you're going to put out there to share with the community? Um, and at some point, um, it was the, the way to fix the problem was actually just a shift in perspective, I think. Um, you know, and from there, I, I tackled the, my my reply to the, the reviewers differently i feel i just you know to, to some extent you kind of have to detach yourself from your replies and not let your emotions kind of drive you um i'm not saying you know throw your emotions away but it which is, it, it feels hard to do because you put i've put so many years into this project it's actually it's a, i think i started this project in my first semester so i've been working on this for years and my solution was uh, talking to other people, talking to other mentors, people that have gone through this process and shifting my perspective based on their feedback to engage with the content in a way where I wasn't so um, obsessed with applying meaning to my work as a scientist based on their feedback. Yeah, I definitely agree with that point. It takes a lot of resilience and we'll say compartmentalization to go through this process, but it's definitely great to refine the work collaboratively. So now getting back to Dr. Brad Johnson. As a professor of psychology and accomplished author himself of both academic papers and books, he offers us a useful tip in thinking about and working through the publishing process and the challenges it can present. And then, you know, one little tip that I have related to this publishing piece that has served me so well in my career. Um, I don't think we talk enough about how depressing and angst-inducing it is to get your first rejections. <laughs> um, you know, this happens more often than not, right? We, in the best case, you get a revise and submit, right? No journal ever says, yeah, this is perfect, we'll accept it. 
you know, the, the best you'll get is a revise and submit. So it can be a very thankless job. And I think it can deflate people so much they quit or they put the thing aside and then they don't touch it. My personal policy, the minute I get that letter, I'll put it aside for one day after I've read all the reviews and then I immediately get back to it the next day. And if it's a revise and submit, I refuse to do anything else until I get that resubmitted. That is my only priority. I get it back out. If it's been rejected, I'm getting it off to the next journal, maybe after I make some changes, but I am not gonna let it languish. That's how people get stuck in their publishing and, and research careers. You've gotta have the fortitude to kind of, you know, move beyond that unpleasant advice that you got or, or feedback take it for what it is, and then get that journal article back out. Absolutely. <laughs> Holding ourselves accountable to our timelines and by extension to our research is an important point. And there's really no need to let this stuff stress you out and fester. The sooner you can get it done and get it back off your plate, the better. Now, one important part of research and publishing in graduate school is collaboration. And while it can seem like research is an individual process, that's couldn't be farther from the case in reality. And whether you're working with a colleague, advisor, or if you're working as a research assistant, collaboration, and by extension, co-authoring, is critical skill to learn in academia. Our graduate student panel provided some insights on this. Yeah, so um, I guess like in terms of my work, um, what I found most beneficial is first to, you know, make sure that my PI was leading in terms of like, making sure that I met the collaborators that would be um, most beneficial to me producing my own work, but that it would complement the work of the lab and it would complement ongoing research um, so that I'm not, you know, redoing something that someone else has done, but I'm adding in an innovative way to the field. Um, and so I really, you know, I let my PI take the lead um, at first, like as a, you know, first, second year student, and then I sort of learned that these are individuals that are going to be there long term um, in my time in the lab as a scientist. And so I would make sure to contact them when we had, you know, a manuscript that was going out like, hey, this is my work. This is what I do. Would you mind looking over this? Um, going to conferences, making sure that you connect with individuals before you go, letting them know like, hey, I have a poster I'll be presenting or I'm going to this talk. Uh, we should meet up and then talk about like the direction our, our work is going. Um, and especially with my work. So as I mentioned, my work takes place. Our field site is distinct from where I physically am as a grad student. And so I make sure that whenever we have meetings relating to our collaborators um, overseas, that I'm at those meetings, even if they're at like five in the morning or if they're at 12 midnight, I'm at those meetings because it's important for me to get to know others and really immerse myself in the research. Um, and then, as you mentioned, make those connections for future collaborations and to ensure that my work is being acknowledged and that I can help out in the best way in terms of, of the ongoing projects. Yeah, um, you know, I think one of the most important things is um, that I've had to learn, I think, as a, as a process is just learning to be vulnerable with, with your collaborators, finding someone with whom you, you can be vulnerable. You know, I think sharing writing and sharing your ideas is, um, is really scary. 
um, and to like having somebody, yeah, that you can, you know, just have that ease with, um, that you can send your, your, you know, messiest drafts to and, um, you know, kind of be like, it's 2am. Sorry about this. Hope it's okay. Um, so I personally haven't co-authored anything with anybody, but I would say in terms of collaborations, I think, um, the most important thing is communicating and um, making sure everyone knows their roles and also having conversations up front about like first author, second author, or whatever other details need to work out amongst yourselves, having those conversations early so everyone can set this, have the same expectations for the research and for the paper. Um, I think people run into issues like if you write like at the end when everyone's like, oh, who's first author, who's second author, and it can turn into some sort of argument. But um, I think that that's probably the most important thing is just to communicate well. And that also includes like communicating when you're actually doing the writing. So having like a collaborative approach to that. So like a Google Doc or something like that and figuring out how that could work amongst yourselves too. It's important. Um, I figured, you know, if there was an opportunity, you know, someone would talk to me about it. Um, but especially as a graduate student, like to turn around and go to a professor and say like, hey, I have this idea for a paper. Um, you know, do you think that there's something there? Is this something that you would want to work on? Do you know how, you know, how best I can learn this? Um, and my advisor was like, you know, you could learn it, but that will put you back in your timeline. You know, if you want to co-author this, I'd be happy to help. And I was like, yes. <laughs> Uh, yes, this is exactly, you know, this is where the paper needed to go and you have the skills to get it there. Um, and so that was a, a good collaboration. But then another, at another point, I was talking with a, a student, another graduate student a year above me. Um, and I was like, yeah, I just, I found these interesting variables, you know, I'd love to know more. Um, and she was like, yeah, I would also love to know more. And I was like, do you want to write a paper? Is this how paper collaborations happen? Is it just via Zoom? You're like, hey, we should write a paper. Like, Hey, we should get drinks sometime. Um, but it turns out, yes, it can be. It can be a little bit of that. And I mean, you know, none of it was arbitrary. None of it was like I have to get a co-authored paper. I really want to work with this person. Let me pitch something that I'm not interested in. Um, I had the genuine interest, and I was like, you know what? This is either not for me to do by myself, or I, you know, I can't do this by myself. Where can I tap in? You know, a team. And I mean, there's part of it that is a strategy. I just went to um, a talk on grant funding um, and there was a whole little section about how sometimes in this particular case, a professor pitched a co-authored paper to a graduate student because she knew she would be named as like co-PI or supervisor on a funding application. And if they had an established published connection, the funding grant was that much more likely to go through. And that's not something I knew, but I now know that information should I be, you know, looking for funding sources at a later date? Hey, you know, pick someone that you've published with or publish with someone you might pick. Yeah, excellent points there. As always, thanks to our wonderful graduate student panelists. In order, that was Amanda Ruiz, a pathobiology student at Brown University, Dana Ahern, a feminist studies scholar at UCSB, Kiara Lee, biomedical engineering student at Brown University, and Kristen Zuck, a sociology student here at BU. So Heather, as a six-year PhD student, what are your thoughts and experiences in effective collaboration and co-authoring? Because I know it can be a challenge. 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would say that it's harder than it looks, um, but the output is really, really valuable. In academia, we spend a lot of time alone, especially cultivating our area of expertise and sort of making ourselves a singular expert in one area. So it's really great to collaborate, but it can be hard. It's not necessarily intuitive to us, especially in later stages of our career. Um, we're not used to it, so be sure to align your goals and clarify your roles early and also be flexible. It's so important to support your colleagues, but we also need to be aware of disproportionate labor, especially between graduate students and more senior faculty members. I've definitely heard horror stories in that regard, so it's important to protect ourselves. And I think for qualitative researchers like me, it can really be hard to get that big N or this big sample size that journals will find appealing, whether it's interviews, content analysis of newspapers or advertisements or something else. Having a co-author really helps you extend your data pool, and it can help with areas such as intercoder reliability that ensures that the themes that you're identifying in the data are salient to others. Overall, while it takes time, I'd say that the benefits are huge, and teamwork, delegation, and meeting deadlines are all good skills to have and to learn wherever you end up, whether it's industry, nonprofits, or academia. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, as a new PhD student, I'm just starting to think about how I can collaborate in my research and not just go it alone, which is, of course, my instinct. So those are some <laughs> excellent points to keep in mind. Thanks for sharing that with us. Oh, totally, of course. And uh, we're looking forward to see you guys uh, for our next episode of the Research Skills Season when we discuss mentoring with Dr. Yasmin Dallaire and Dr. Brad Johnson. Um, and he literally wrote the book on mentoring. Um, so he's definitely a great guest to have, as well as our graduate student panelists. Check the show notes for more information on our guest today. And please stop by the Vitamin PhD podcast website for more details about the show and past and upcoming episodes. Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll talk again soon.